Specialty Story, session number 213. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. Why'd they choose it? What led them to it? What do they like about it? What don't they like about it? And are there any major changes coming that maybe you should know about? This week, I am talking to an academic gynecologic oncologist, Dr. Stephen Rose, who's been out of training now for 15 years, and he's going to talk all about his path, his journey, and what it is like to practice nowadays as a gyne-onc physician. We start the conversation by talking about what led Dr. Stephen Rose to gynecologic oncology to begin with. I did a rotation as a fourth-year medical student um, on the gynecologic oncology service uh, at Indiana University where I was uh, a medical student and worked with uh, some really fabulous GYN oncologists there um, and got to see kind of the full spectrum of what GYN oncology did. Um, you know, the breadth of the surgery that they performed and, and the way they cared for patients and, you know, with chemotherapy and end-of-life issues and things. And, and it first kind of caught my attention then. What was it about what you saw and, and uh, whether it was the treatments or the, the patients that drew you into it? Uh, I, I think a little bit of both. I had made the decision at that time to go into OBGYN. So I knew that, I knew that female patients, um, you know, were you know, kind of where I wanted to spend my time. I just felt a better connection to, uh, you know, to women when, when we were, uh, when I was in medical school and, um, I had made the decision to do OBGYN. Um, and I knew that, yeah, I wanted to, you know, spend my life taking care of women. Uh, I hadn't really given much thought to, to the cancer aspect of that yet. And, and I think it was the, the amount, you know, they do, there's a, there's a different breadth of surgery that a GYN oncologist performs, uh, compared to a regular gynecologist. Mm. Um, the surgeries are a bit bigger, a little more intense, um, and oftentimes involved the upper abdomen. Uh, and, and I was excited by that prospect, but at the same time, I think, you know, meeting patients who, who had such significant needs at the time, a lot of, uh, OBGYN, uh, I'm not disparaging it in any way, but a lot of it is you're delivering care to women who are by and large healthy women, uh, having children at a, at a very wonderful time in their lives. Mm. Um, and there was a stark contrast in gynecologic oncology because these were women faced with, you know, the most significant health crisis of their lives and, and sometimes the, you know, ultimately what would take their lives. And so it, it was, um, you know, I felt very connected to that and I felt very useful in a way that I hadn't up until that point. What was it? It's interesting. I think the fact that you sought out a specialty where your patients were potentially going through hardship and were 
uh, not healthy and happy um, from the normal kind of OB world. What what is it about your personality, or what is it about those patients that really drew you to them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I you know because I did this rotation as a medical student, and then I went on to do my OBGYN residency, and really had kind of put GYN oncology on the back burner a little bit, just thinking, yeah, I think I'm just going to. I'm going to get out. I'm going to do. I'm going to be an OBGYN. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go on and do a fellowship. Um, and certainly, don't uh, recommend this experience for anyone going through training. But, but I actually um, had cancer as a resident. Uh, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma mm. uh, when I was a third year resident, and that experience uh, right before I then did our gynecologic oncology rotation as a resident. Um, you know, the mix of those two things together really kind of cemented uh, my desire to then uh, go on and work in cancer at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not something <clears throat> to recommend. Be like, you need to no. go and get these <laughs> diseases to be able to take care of those patients. But yeah, absolutely not. Don't um, recommend that. But for me, that was a, that was yeah. a driving force, it, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it gives you a, a specific level of or easier ability to empathize with your patients. Um, I, yeah, I, yes and no. I, you know, I, I hesitate to use that experience. It certainly, I think, pushed me in that direction. Um, but, uh, you know, I, knock on wood, had a, had a cancer that had a pretty good success yeah. rate with treatment. And, and so I, you know, I hate to equate those two because many of our patients are, are facing more daunting odds. Uh, but I, I, you know, it definitely gave me a perspective I didn't have before, I'll say that, uh, in how, you know, what patients were dealing with and what their families were dealing with at the same time. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions about gynecologic oncology that you're dealing with, with residents or medical students? Um, I, th I think one of the biggest myths that, that people hear is that it must be really, really sad to deal with cancer patients, right? I hear that a lot. Um, and I think people forget that the majority of, of a gynecologic oncologist practice are, is uh, endometrial cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And endometrial cancer, by and large, is a very curable disease. And so a lot of uh, the women we're taking care of are actually cured of their cancers. And, and it's a very rewarding experience. And you get to form relationship, relationships with those people. Uh, over time uh, that are actually doing really, really well. Mm. And so I think that's one of the big, uh, definitely one of the big misconceptions about our job is that it's just all sad. Uh, and that's certainly not the case. Yeah. For the the patients who unfortunately aren't, aren't as lucky um, with the diagnosis or prognosis, from a psychological standpoint for you, how do you handle that and take that home with you? Um, I, yeah, I think that's... That's probably the hardest thing that that all of us learn as we go through. Um, no different than I, I suppose any other cancer physician or, or or doctor that deals with patients with terminal illness. Um, you know, I I think having a healthy perspective uh, helps. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the one of the nice things about GYN oncology and one of the hard things is that you get to know people really well because we do, we, we not only operate on our patients, but that we then administer chemotherapy as well. And so, you know, you'll have a relationship with someone with a terminal illness, you know, sometimes all the way up to 10 years. 
before that illness might uh, take their life. And so you get to know these women really, really well. That's the beauty of it. Uh, but it's also the heartbreak of it to a certain extent. Um, mm -hmm. Because you do get to know them really, really well, and you become, you know, they become a part of your life. And um, I think, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to say it doesn't bother me, but, you know, I, there's no way it can't. Mm. Uh, but I think you try to take the lessons that you learn from it with you and, and realize that it's okay to be sad uh, when a patient passes away. Yeah. What are the, what's the, um, like the, the best trait do you think someone needs to have to be a good gynecologic oncologist? Um, I think you have to like surgery, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. it, it is, um, at its heart, a surgical subspecialty of OBGYN. Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, um, surgery that we do a lot of cool techniques, um, and a lot of interesting th stuff on their horizon as well. So I do think you have to be technical and you have to enjoy the surgical aspect of, of medical care. Um, as far as a trait goes, um, you know, I would say persistent is also something that's really important because um, a lot of what we do does take a long time. I mean, it's uh, at least seven years of training before you're finished. Uh, so you do have to be able to come in every day and put in the hard work uh, to get through that. Mm. Talk about the um, the types of patients that you're treating and, and whether or not they're coming in diagnosed already and you're there for definitive treatment or are you diagnosing them along the way? Most of our patients have been referred because they either have a diagnosis of cancer or uh, have a suspicion that they have uh, a gynecologic cancer. So for example, um, endometrial cancer patients usually already have a biopsy that uh, shows that they have an endometrial cancer and they get referred in. Other patients, for example, ovarian cancer patients, uh, will be sent because of a CT scan or an ultrasound finding uh, that has a concern for cancer. And those will be patients that we will see and operate on and uh, and talk to about, you know, kind of the risks and uh, risks of cancer versus a benign mass, things like that. Mm. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, I, you know, most, most of us have, you know, I, I'm in academic medicine. So, uh, in academics, most of us have a couple of days where we're operating during the week, um, and a full day of clinic, uh, often a full day and a half of clinic during the week, and then some administrative time. Um, and in some cases that might be two to two and a half days of surgery in a week, depending on how much research you're doing and administration. Uh, but in, in a typical clinic, you'll have a full day of clinic with new patients uh, seen on that day. Um, sometimes people will give chemotherapy in their own clinic. Uh, we kind of have a different model here at Wisconsin where we have a very specific clinic that where all of our chemotherapy patients come to that we staff. Um, and then, and as I said, a couple of days in the operating room. Um, the surgeries that we perform can be anything from laparoscopic, minimally invasive. Uh, we use a lot of robotic techniques uh, for hysterectomy and sentinel lymph node detection for endometrial cancer. Uh, and then we do a lot of open surgery for ovarian cancer. So laparotomies with removal of the ovaries and, and removal of lymph nodes and um, oftentimes debulking surgeries, which are kind of, a, it's a crude name for what we do, but it, it's literally getting rid of the bulk of 
cancer in the abdomen. Mm. And those things might entail bowel resections with anastomosis, maybe uh, colostomy or ileostomy. Uh, we do splenectomies. Um, we do diaphragm resections. Uh, there's a lot uh, that goes into the surgical aspect of it. Wow. It's surprising potentially for a lot of students hearing, wait, you're you're a gynecologic surgeon. What are you doing up by the diaphragm? Uh, but right. cancer spreads everywhere. So correct. Um, yeah. that's that's very interesting. Talk about uh, call. What does what does call look like for you? Yeah, so call for a gynecologic oncologist is probably different than what people uh, experience. Most of us in medical school have that experience of a, a you know overnight call or twenty four hour call. Or back when I was in school, it was a thirty six hour call. But um, but call for a GYN oncologist is often you know, the way we do it here. It's four days in a row, uh, Monday through Thursday, and then Friday through Sunday, to give some continuity to the care that we're providing to our patients in the hospital. So we like to have the same provider uh, for most of the week caring for patients in the hospital and then same over the weekend. Um, and we can do that because there aren't a lot of emergencies that happen in the middle of the night uh, for G1 oncology. We are often the uh, go-to call person for obstetrical emergencies. I shouldn't say emergencies, but obstetrical hemorrhages if uh, – if there's a patient in labor who ends up needing a cesarean hysterectomy, uh, the gynecologic oncologist will often get called to go help with that. Luckily, those things don't happen very often either. Uh, and so we can routinely be on call for a period of three or four days in a row. Uh, and it's not, you know, uh, too cumbersome. And, you know, most of the time you, you can sleep, uh, even though you might be getting some phone calls and stuff at night. Um, and that's in an academic setting. Now, certainly in, in a private practice setting, things are um, a little bit different. I think the call demands are a, a little bit higher because um, you, you're taking more calls, obviously, in an academic setting. A lot of those calls from the floor are going to residents mm. and fellows and things like that. Um, so, yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? I do. I do. I think... Um, you know, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about OBGYN is that so much of that work happens at night. Uh, <laughs> you know, obstetrics, you know, ba babies don't really follow any routine for when they're going to be born, and so so much of that life was a pretty intense experience, and then a period of time off. Mm -hmm. And I would say GYN oncology follows a different cadence. It, the days are fairly long, uh, but your nights are mostly free. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you might have, you might put in 10 to 12 hour days, but, um, your evenings are by and large free and you're not up at two in the morning, you know, doing deliveries every third or fourth night. Yeah. Uh, so it's a different cadence to the work, but it's one that I actually think lends itself a bit better to having a life outside of, outside of the hospital. Yeah. You, you mentioned the training path a little bit earlier. Uh, what is that? specifically look like? So you do four years of medical school and then what's next? You do uh, four years of an OBGYN residency after that. Um, and then you do either a three or four year fellowship in GYN oncology. Um, there are, most fellowships are three years. Um, and usually there's one 12 month uh, um, rotation of research and then 
two years or 24 months of uh, clinical work. Some of the fellowships that are four years, actually, I think all of the fellowships that are four years, offer usually some sort of advanced degree uh, for that extra year, whether it's a master's in clinical research or some other degree. Uh, typically, they're a bit heavier on the research end. Yeah. What, um, for, for the osteopathic student listening to this, what do you think they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias that may be out there? Um, that's a really good question. Um, because gynecologic oncology fellowship is, uh, historically pretty difficult to get into. Mm. Um, we have about, you know, roughly a hundred applications for our one spot every year here, here where I'm a, a physician at University of Wisconsin. Um, there are 62 fellowships now. They're used to, when I, when I started in 2006, I think there were only maybe 30, you know, 36, 37 fellowships in the country. So we have added the number of spots. Um, it is really difficult. And I think um, there are there are people, I'm not going to say places, but there are certainly people that have some um, bias towards MD versus DO. But I would say that um, making sure that you have a good, uh, you know, a good amount of research on your CV is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that tends to separate good juvenile oncology applicants is, you know, whether they've done some research during their uh, residency or undergraduate training. Uh, kind of, you know, some sort of inquiry in, into gynecologic cancer can kind of separate you a little bit. Um, and then we look at things like medical school performance as well as board scores um, and extracurricular things. So I would say that um, coming from a DO school certainly isn't going to count you out by any stretch, uh, but you do have to make sure you have the other areas shored up in order to be competitive. Yeah. For the future primary care docs listening to this, uh, or, or maybe OB, OBGYN, which which we can consider primary care, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a, a gynecologic oncologist? Wow, that question may have changed over the years, um, <laughs> but I would I would say right now, uh, it, you know, it's really um, the thing that we struggle the most with is access. Um, over time we get referred more and more patients, you know, and, and, and I should, I should, you know, maybe refrain from, from, you know, going too deep into that. But, but in, in, when I first started as a G1 oncologist, we had a hard time sometimes with people operating on ovarian masses that were very likely cancer. And then, you know, would have to send them here with sort of a half completed surgery, Mm. And I would say that the pendulum has actually swung a little bit further in the other direction at this point, where most OBGYNs are really reluctant to operate on anyone with a even a you know slight concern for a cancer in the ovary. Um, and I think it's created uh, an access issue for patients that actually do have cancer being able to get into their GYN oncology um, appointments. And so, you know, one thing is just paying particularly close attention to, uh, you know, is this really, you know, what's the risk of this mass being cancer? Is this something that could be done locally or does it really need to come to an academic center to be, uh, to have a, a surgery? 
Um, I would say that's probably our biggest hurdle right now. And, it, and it, it's certainly not the fault of OBGYNs or primary care. I think it's just the way that the way that the systems and the way that medicine has kind of flowed in the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I would say those two are the biggest. We do work uh, closely with colorectal surgery. Um, oftentimes our cancers, uh, you know, will be linked in some ways. So for example, um, colon cancer can sometimes actually grow into the pelvic structures like the ovary or the uterus. Uh, and they will ask us to come and help, you know, remove those organs during a, a colon cancer surgery and vice versa. Um, you know, we do, we do some pretty routine, uh, bowel resection and ostomies and things like that. But many of these cases can get pretty advanced and pretty complex, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, so we work with them, uh, routinely and, and doing surgeries together. The other group of surgeons we work pretty routinely with is, um, plastic surgery. And, you know, a lot of times we'll be doing uh, larger surgeries that need uh, flaps, whether it be from, you know, the gracilis or rectus abdominis, and they'll come in and help with those to fill defects in the pelvis at times. Mm. Um, yeah. So those are, and, and, and I should say, we also work pretty closely with medical oncology. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into the field? Um, I would say that you know I I actually <laughs> I actually knew going into the into this but I would I, I ignored this uh, I ignored this advice but uh, one of my um, one of my mentors and attendings when I was a student I asked that very same question and he said to me that the the acuity of the patients and their medical needs uh, it never gets any that never gets any easier meaning the patients just kept you know, being sicker over time. And I would say that's the piece that um, can at times begin to wear you down a little bit. These, you know, these patients are often very, very ill, whether from their cancer or honestly from other uh, sources. A lot of our patients are diabetic and obese and have, uh, you know, high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, uh, kidney disease. So we see a lot of medical illness and a lot of uh, pretty sick patients. Um, and I think, you know, over time, you know, that, that's a, it's a pretty hard edge to live on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think you have to be pretty comfortable taking care of those medical illnesses, um, as well as, you know, being a surgeon. So. Yeah. So I asked this question, uh, I actually pretty recently to another, uh, gynecologic oncologist, um, for a different series. And the, the question is around, you mentioned these comorbidities like obesity, um, which are a big uh, risk for gynecologic cancers. With the kind of current societal environment that we're in where we have lots of body positivity and everything else, how do you as a, as a physician balance body positivity with your obesity is potentially going to increase your risk of, of gynecologic cancer. Did they have a better answer than the <laughs> one I'm about to give? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, that's, a, that's actually a really great question and one that I think most of us wrestle with. Yeah. Um, and most of us probably have done poorly at one time or another in our lives. I, you know, To me, body positivity isn't necessarily um, 
you know, trying to say, Hey, it's a really great thing that you're obese. Yeah. But it, it, it's, it's more like making sure people aren't made to feel inferior or made to feel bad about being obese because I think we all realize at this point that there are a multitude of factors that go into that. Some of which I don't think we even fully understand yeah. as to why our society uh, has the problem that it has today with obesity. Uh, and I suspect we'll learn more as time goes on. But so body positivity to me is like, Hey, I'm not going to make somebody feel bad about this, but at the same time, you do have a debt uh, to make sure that you, patients understand uh, that they are at increased risk for some of these cancers, specifically endometrial cancer in our case and, and breast cancer, uh, to know that those things are risk factors for them. And, you know, I tend to go through those risk factors with patients like a new diagnosis of endometrial cancer. You know, often, I mean, with any diagnosis of cancer, one of the first questions we're asked is, why did I get this cancer? And while I can never actually answer that question with 100% honesty, you can tell people that this is a risk factor doesn't mean that that's why you got it but but we do know that it's one of the things that can increase the risk and and i think you know over time you learn the techniques of being able to talk to patients without making them feel bad about being obese um but it is a, it is a fine line we have to walk yeah yeah it's a tricky one what do you like the most about your field um, I would say for sure, uh, you know, the patients we serve are some of the best patients uh, anywhere. Um, and, and that's kind of a weird thing to say, like some patients are better than others. <laughs> um, but what I mean by that is that, you know, by and large, you know, women are the glue that keeps most families together. You know, they're the mothers, they're the grandmothers. Um, people tend to rally around the matriarchs of a family. Uh, and we get to see that day in and day out. And the women themselves are uh, so courageous and so gracious and so thankful for the care that we provide them um, that it's truly an honor to serve them. Um, and, I, you know, I would say, number one, it's being able to serve that population in the way that we have over the years. And number two, I, I truly love operating. I really enjoy being in the operating room and being able to, um, you know, care for women in that way and get rid of these cancers and, um, you know, allow women a, a, the, the ability to, to heal from them. What do you like the least? I, um, I would say that the, the hardest part, aside from emails, <laughs> just so many emails. <laughs> no, um, but I would say the hardest part is for sure, uh, you know, when, when you have patients that you've made these connections with who are struggling with recurrences uh, and, and, you know, turning that corner towards, you know, palliation of a cancer is always difficult. What major changes to the field do you see coming that someone coming up through training should know about, whether it's new technologies, medications? Yeah, well, you know, robotics was a big change in the last 15 years and allowed so many more surgeries to be done uh, minimally invasively, and that's been a, a real bonus for patients. Um, right now, what we're seeing are just huge changes, and I'm sure you've heard this from other people in molecular medicine, 
Um, you know, one of the biggest advances in, in ovarian cancer treatment has been PARP inhibitors like Olaparib and um, Rucaparib, some of the other, you know, PARP inhibitors that are really allowing women with either BRCA mutant ovarian cancer or uh, homologous recombination deficient ovarian cancers to live drastically longer than they were living before these drugs became available. So that's probably been the biggest um, the biggest win that I've seen as a GYN oncologist. Yeah. And I suspect that's where the field is going. Um, we're only going to learn more about the genetic signatures of these tumors. Um, and it's only going to help us be able to, you know, treat people in better and better ways. So I think, I think there's, there's just incredible opportunity in the next 20 years. Do you think uh, just kind of anecdotally that my friend circle and, and people I'm connected to, it seems like prophylactic uh, mastectomies and and hysterectomies and oophorectomies are are becoming more common because we're able to detect with genetics uh, uh, and stuff like that. Do do you think that will be a big part of uh, quote unquote prevention for the future for this field? Boy, you know. You hope not. <laughs> and the reason I say that is you'd hope that we'd be able to find something better than actually just removing yeah. uh, the organs, especially removing ovaries, um, just because there are so many health implications to taking women's ovaries out at, at you know, premenopausal ages. Um, you know, we have made some, uh, made some definite ground by taking out fallopian tubes instead of ovaries. Because we have figured out that most ovarian cancers actually start in the distal end of the fallopian tube. Mm -hmm. uh, and so salpingectomy as a means to reduce the risk of ovary cancer has really taken off in the last few years and allowed women to keep their ovaries and their hormones. Um, but you're right. I mean, we are, we are finding more and more mutations that increase patients' risks of having uh, ovarian or breast cancer or even endometrial cancer in some cases. And, and prophylactic surgery will always be a, you know, a part of that. Um, but, you know, with, with these new mutations, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to find uh, new medications that can actually take the place of, of prophylactic surgery. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a GYN oncologist? Uh, for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, I had this conversation actually with a group of, uh, a group of my friends, we were over dinner. Uh, there were five, five of us sitting over dinner and we were, we were all kind of reminiscing and, and had that question. And, and I, and I honestly, I thought about it for a minute and I was like, yeah, I, I, I think I would have done the exact same thing. So, uh, which is, you know, not the kind of guy I am. And it was sort of surprising to hear myself say that, but, um, yeah, I would definitely do it again. Nice. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about gynecologic oncologic uh, surgery in the future? Um, yeah, I would say if you're interested in GYN oncology, reach out to your local gynecologic oncologist with your interest. Um, it's always great to get a head start. As I said, it's, it's sometimes a difficult specialty to match into for a fellowship. Um, so reach out early and um, kind of let them get to know you. And, and usually at least what we do here is if we know someone's interested, we'll make sure that we include them on any research uh, studies that would be appropriate for them and uh, try to mentor them along to, to help them get there if they want to. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. Stephen Rose. If you are interested in learning more about Gyne Onc, 
go to sgo.org. Again, that's sgo.org. That's the Society of Gynecologic Oncology. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If there's a specialty out there that you haven't heard on this podcast and one that you've been waiting for, let me know. Shoot us a DM uh, or a message on Instagram. I'm at Medical School HQ. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.